Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast with me, Vas Christodoulou. Danielle Keats Citroen is a MacArthur Grant winning legal scholar based in the University of Virginia. She's been recognised as one of the world's leading thinkers by Prospect and has advised Vice President Harris and the UK government. I sat down with her to talk about her new book, The Fight for Privacy, which has just come out in the UK. Please note that there are explicit references to sex and related crimes in this episode. It's not suitable for listening with kids around. Danielle, your new book is The Fight for Privacy, Protecting Dignity, Identity and Love in the Digital Age. And there's a very specific kind of privacy you're fighting for. It's called intimate privacy. What is it and why does it matter? Intimate privacy is a foundational privacy interest. So it's the privacy that is afforded sort of access to and information about our bodies, our health, our innermost thoughts that we frankly record all day long as we browse and read and search and text and email. And it is the information and access to our sexual orientation, sexual activities, gender, and our closest relationships. So so effectively, it's all the ways that we manage the boundaries around intimate life. And it is, by my lights, and as I argue in the book, among the most important privacy interests that we ought to protect. You know, we, of course, have privacy around our bank account information, so financial privacy. And that's really important. And we've got to protect our bank account information from thieves. But we wouldn't say that financial privacy is the key to human flourishing. And that is very true of intimate privacy. That is, the privacy that we afford our intimate life is the key to figuring out who we are to our own self-esteem and, and social esteem, so how others see us. And it enables us to love. So it is indispensable to civic engagement, to participation, and to identity. Can you give us a sketch of your career so far and how you became involved in advocating for the protection of intimate privacy? I first started writing about intimate privacy or, or you know, sort of thinking about it as a civil right, as a human right. I'd say in 2007, my first book was about cyber stalking. And always a strategy of targeting someone online included privacy invasions, like the doxing, so the releasing someone's home address without their permission. And nude photos um, posted without someone's consent has always been part of the strategy of targeting, abusing, and stalking people. And so in 2007, a woman wrote to me from Hawaii explaining that her ex, a police officer, had forced her to take nude photos, like basically threatened to hurt her if she didn't pose for nude photos. And after they broke up, it was a very abusive relationship, he posted her nude images on on then a very early stages revenge porn site. It was called Private Voyeur. And he didn't put up her full name. But he did include sort of racist slurs, but without other identifying information. And she contacted me because she wanted to sue her ex in a court in Hawaii, but she wanted to sue as a Jane Doe. At the time, the images were not searchable. Like in a Google search of her name, they didn't appear. And so her fight was she wanted to stop him from reposting the photos all over the internet. She wanted those photos taken down. She went to the site and asked them to remove them. They refused. They ignored her. Um, The site was hosted in the United States and so was immune from responsibility. And she didn't have the copyright in the photos. There were his photos. And so she couldn't do anything to force the site to take it down. And unfortunately, the judge in Hawaii refused to let her sue under a pseudonym. 
So she dropped the suit. She was a very famous businesswoman in Hawaii and didn't want the photos sort of linked to her name. And so we, uh, she enlisted me to change the law in Hawaii. So basically what we did is I provided written testimony and talked to lawmakers in Hawaii. And this was my first kind of um, work in the, on the legislative level. And we were able to pass a law in Hawaii that enabled in suits involving domestic violence and intimate privacy violations that the courts sort of the presumption would be to allow plaintiffs to sue under pseudonyms. So that was the first time I sort of began thinking about legislative work and the way in which intimate privacy, that we could change the law on the ground to help individuals. And in 2009, I met a woman whose former last name I won't disclose, but her new last name is Holly Jacobs. And her nude photo had been posted all over the internet by her ex, and she was a PhD student. So a lot of the images were posted on sites alongside her full name, her full former last name, which was quite unique, alongside the suggestion that she was interested in sex and that she was sleeping with her students because she was a grad student. She was teaching uh, you know, undergrads. And I met Holly, my colleague, Dr. Marianne Franks. We all kind of got together and we founded the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative in 2013, which is an organization to combat intimate privacy violations. So that kind of began my work on intimate privacy as a legislative advocacy effort. And in 2014, there were like three states that criminalized the practice in the United States. And by, so we're here we are, it's 2022. There are now 48 states, D.C., and two territories that criminalize the practice. But unfortunately, they're misdemeanors. They're woefully under-enforced. And so in 2019, I began writing a series of articles kind of theorizing, what's this concept of intimate privacy? Why is it so important that we need to get, we need to conceptualize it accurately and we need to protect it comprehensively. So that's the, sorry, that's a little bit of a longish response, but my sort of work began as an advocate. I started writing about cyber stalking and then focused in on that aspect of cyber stalking involving intimate privacy to make the case that it was so important and that it required comprehensive protection, civilly, criminally, and then with industry. We'll return to cyberstalking in a moment, but I want to start off by asking you about the most ubiquitous form of digital surveillance, which is the corporate surveillance that's baked into almost everything that we do online. Why is data gathering so easy and so profitable? So every, what, what is, has, this is as of 2005, 2006, are, you know, formally sort of pre- Pre that period, you know, our watches were just watches, right? Our uh, devices were just devices, and and companies made money from selling our television, our you know, our phones, and and we we in in that way they served our purposes. But companies soon figured out that if they could collect, and of course, in a networked age, the more data they collected, the more lucrative those devices were. They weren't just tools and services to serve us. Right, to, for a flat fee, they could generate data about our most intimate lives that they could then sell and market to advertisers, marketers, and in turn to data brokers. And that was the most lucrative of all. So our data, in some sense, our data became the point, right? The Silicon Valley's ethos of like move fast and break things, the hacker ethos, that hacker ethos, what they threw against the wall and didn't think about the harm was to collect our intimate data hand over fist, to sell it. And then data brokers, in turn, would amass like 10,000 data points on each and every one of us and sell them to employers, to life insurers, to um, and the biggest client in the United States is law enforcement. 
So, you know, what it, what indeed it does is like the premiums that are of our life insurance that go up in ways that we have no idea about, the jobs, the third-party hiring services determine if we get an interview, right? And if we get, you know, a job, all of those sort of disparate actors are obtaining our data broker dossiers and making decisions about us in ways we don't have no idea about, but that is often really costly to women, non-whites, LGBTQ folks. Why? Because our bodies, that is the bodies of the most vulnerable, they're stigmatized, right? Due to cultural, sort of baked in cultural and social attitudes. And, you know, often the metrics that are being collected about us. So just think about period tracking apps, which one third of all girls and women use in the United States, and that's equally true in the UK uh, and around the world. The metrics that they're collecting are metrics that have to do with, do you have cramps? Are you pregnant? Are you have suffering from migraines? Right. And those things can only be used against you. That is their health problems. Right. So as you're if you're only measuring things that situate you as sick, right? As, you know, time off, likely time off from work, those things are going to be costly to you if that's what we're measuring. And that is what they're measuring. And the services and products used to hoover up our data often present themselves as our friends. Or even in the case of virtual assistants, oh, yes. our employees. Can you talk us through the psychology of that? Yes. So, you know, it's often referred to as seductive surveillance. And our tools sort of, they tell us, right? These companies are all telling us that these products and services are good for us. They make our life easier and better and more interesting. And they are, they're built in a way that make them seem sort of sexy, exciting. Think of data, dating apps. You know, the, even the founders of the apps themselves, like the founder of Tinder is quoted as saying, like, people don't even really use it to find dates. They just enjoy swiping because it makes them feel good. But from the company's perspective, swiping may be f- seemingly fun for us, but it's all their all the data that they're collecting about the type of people we're interested, you know, what kind of, you know, the gender, the, you know, the look, the race, et cetera, of the people we're interested in. And so it's just a data collection bonanza of our most intimate fantasies and thoughts. And so the idea is to get us, it's almost like it's often called a dark pattern. Right. That is, they're built in ways to collect more and more data in ways that we would never know, expect, or want. And breaches happen all the time with almost no consequences for the companies who are doing the data collection. (sighs) What do they say? Sadly, yes. You know, there's a breach a day or more. And, you know, the breaches will be in the millions and millions of people's identifying and most intimate information. And in in, in part, it's because like it, it's just the residual risk. When you collect data in a database, it's like a honeypot. It's attractive for hackers who can easily sell that information on the dark web, you know, and, and use it for identity theft purposes, among other things. Extortion, you know, bribery, blackmail. And so, yes, our data is unfortunately secured quite insecurely. And because the consequences are so little, that is, you know, so often, this is true of courts in the United States, you know, we often say that the harm is intangible. That is, there's a risk of harm, that is the risk of identity theft. And the courts don't recognize the anxiety and risk as tangible harms, as harms that they recognize in law. And so companies often will just say, hey, they externalize harm, and they don't have to internalize it. And they proceed as if it's like sort of business as usual. 
Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at HowTo Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's return to cyberstalking and sex. Disclosing someone's nudes without consent is often called revenge porn, but you don't think that's a helpful term. Why not? When we think of the concept of revenge, the notion is like you've done something wrong to warrant retribution. And we've studied at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative and found that the idea of getting back at someone for retribution is so not what drives people. That's something like, Over 50% of people say it's like for fun, to show up for friends. They're not doing it for revenge. And just conceptually, it puts the blame on the victim, where the only blame in this circumstance should be on the person posting someone's nude image without their permission. They violated intimate privacy. So at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, we struggled like in the early years of of writing about the concept because people would call it revenge porn because it's sort of sexy, like it captures your imagination. And lawmakers wanted to use that term. This is in the United States in the 2013, 2014, as we began working on advocacy. And we we tried to come up with a term that was easy and bite-sized that we could capture the problem. And when I worked with the then Attorney General Kamala Harris, she's now our vice president, I worked for her for two years on her cyber exploitation task force. She wanted to use the term and did use the term cyber exploitation to refer to non-consensual intimate imagery. But in some sense, the term is quite broad. Like it's all the ways that we use digital tools to exploit. So we at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative use the term non-consensual pornography. We don't love it. (laughs) It's second best because it's not really porn, which is it's not consensual. That's the whole point. But we call it non-consensual pornography because we think it's the best way in an easy way to refer to what is a distinct but part of an intimate privacy violation that's really pervasive and harmful. Even women who've never been filmed naked can become a victim thanks to advances in AI. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, so often the response to to me in the early days of my work, and it continues today, is like, if people didn't want to have their nude photos posted online, they should never have taken it, even on their, you know, uh, in ways that are hard to find, but then are hackable, especially this was true of, of the celebrities whose nude photos were hacked, you know, the iCloud hack, the fappening. And truth be told, you don't have to have taken any photo of yourself or have someone taken it of you with machine learning, with with um, generative adversarial networks, um, AI technology. You can now morph people's faces into por- real pornography, and it appears as if you are engaged in a sex act or involved in um, uh, sexual activity that you've never engaged in. And so deep fakery is what it's called, right? Deep fake sex videos are highly prevalent. There are over 60,000 deep fakes online. More than 92% of them are deep fake sex videos and over 98% of them are women's faces 
being morphed into porn. So you don't have to do anything, right? Like you can walk down the street, (laughs) someone takes your photo and let's assume you've hidden a cave, you've never posted photos or shared. No one's ever taken a photo of you online. You just walk outside, someone takes a photo. They can create a deep fake sex video of you or even like morph your face into a naked body, which is also easily available. Uh, You know, um, tools that are offered now. And so you can become a victim of non-consensual pornography or deep fake sex videos without ever having taken a nude photo of yourself. And the harm caused by these violations is both profound and long lasting. Yes. And it's particularly, you know, we see both the sort of gendered and for gender and sexual minorities and for for women and and particularly women of color, you know, the the harm is not only more often aimed at them. So the harm is so intimate privacy violations more often impact women and LGBTQ individuals. And the harm is more profound. That is, it exacts costs that it wouldn't exact for someone who is in a more privileged spot. So uh, let me just explain why, right? The when, when your nude image appears in uh, a search of your name, it can be really difficult to keep a job, especially if you're a teacher or a nurse, and to get a job if you don't have one. It almost becomes impossible to date and to feel physically safe. So the, the, the costs are profoundly economic, psychological, and you know the harm is pervasive in the sense of you know, if you are a woman and you see other women's nude photos posted online without their permission, or you're, you know, you're a gay man and you see, there are sites devoted just to gay, bi, and trans men, and disturbingly so, that, you know, when your photos appear on these sites, you know, the calculus in your own mind, so often I've heard from victims, I interviewed 60 people for my book from the United States, Iceland, UK, India and Australia, and the resounding sort of theme of their responses was like, I can't run for office. I can't do certain things in my life now. I feel like my opportunities are really limited. And you often feel like you live on a knife's edge, like you have a job and you pray you keep that job. And even if like you can now go to Google and and, and Bing and ask them to de-index the photos in searches of your name, so they'll remain on these disgusting 9,500 non-consensual intimate imagery sites. But you can get them out of a search of your name, but the threat is always there that they're going to be reposted and then appear in searches of your name. So, you know, as victims tell me, they're constantly Googling themselves because when is the next shoe going to drop? You know, when will the next picture appear? And and it's really hard to kind of live your life. And a, a victim told me, and I think this just captured it really well, is that it feels like an incurable disease. Like you can't escape it. It's a recurring harm. And governments have used their immense power to compromise intimate privacy in these ways. For example, Modi's nationalist government in India used pornographic deepfakes to destroy the careers of a critical journalist. Yes. It is, it's really stunning, right? So, so the strategy of privacy invaders, those privacy invaders or those strategies are the handmaidens of governments that want to silence critics. And that's true in Azerbaijan, India, Egypt, that is... They mine and use all these strategies that individuals use to to basically decimate people's lives. They will then dip into spying inks or the data, corporate databases to discredit uh, individuals, crit, often critics and dissenters. And in the case of Rana Ayub, she was a persistent critic of the Modi regime and the coup, the like sort of final straws. And she went on, this is in two, the early 2018, she went on the BBC to cri- criticize the Modi regime for their human rights abuses, especially the Muslim community. And she got a text like sort of seconds before her phone blows up from a source inside the Modi government and says, 
check your phone, you'll see what's coming. And then that second, her Twitter, you know, like if you have your phone on to your alerts, her phone blows up and it's Twitter alerts. So in her, on her Twitter, like on her Twitter account, and she's being sort of um, included in people's tweets. So she's being at, you know, they're, they're, they're tweeting at her, a, a clip of her uh, engaged in a sex act, in which she never engaged in. And it looks so much like her. So she, we sat together in D.C. and she showed me the clip. And it's like, it's unmistakably her, but of course not her. And it went viral. So within 48 hours, it was on half of the phones in India. Now, she was at the time, so it's April 2018. She's in her early 30s. She's a Muslim woman in a very patriarchal society and unmarried, living with her parents. And what then the next move was death threats and rape threats. People posted online and then group texts that made WhatsApp texts made all the way around India that she should be raped, that this was her home address, um, that she was a traitor to the regime. And she basically like hid in her house. And I don't blame her for six months because people would email her and text her and say, I'm raping you, right? Like, don't you don't show your face outside because, you know, you're going to be gang raped. And and that's no a subtle threat in, in India, which we know. And so the the threats were disabling, right? They were not only mentally destroying, right? They were terrifying, but made it really difficult or impossible to work. She hasn't published an article or hasn't been able to publish an article in India since, that in, in, a, in a, an outlet, an established outlet in India, because no one will publish her work. Blessedly, she's so talented. She writes for the Washington Post Global Opinions. She's so brave, but it destroyed her career in India. And closer to home, Trump has used his power as president to destroy the lives of American civil servants. Yes. So, um, you know, Pete Strzok and Lisa Page were – so Pete Strzok was basically the country's, like, most admired counterintelligence officer. And Lisa Page was second in command to the general counsel of the FBI – and they worked on two different investigations. First, the Clinton email investigation, and then they were recruited to work on what was called this crossfire hurricane, the investigation into the Trump campaign's um, ties to Russia. Now, during that period, both really esteemed investigators and lawyers, they had an extramarital affair. And they communicated with each other on their cell phones. And of course, the cell phone conversations were a lot about work, you know, mostly about work. But there were times when they exchanged texts about their families, their health, and some of their thoughts on the campaign that was ongoing. And the Department of Justice, under Trump's direction, sort of discovered these texts through an he ordered an investigation of the Clinton email campaign and why the emails were not why Clinton wasn't prosecuted, which is like you know wildly absurd that a president should be involved in the Department of Justice investigation. But nonetheless, and these texts were unearthed. You know, ordinary in ordinary times, the texts of two FBI officials would not be unearthed and so disclosed to an inspe- inspector general. But they were, because some of those texts involved conversations about Trump and the Trump campaign in a disparaging way. Most of them were totally personal or having to do with their work uh, on Crossfire Hurricane or their email investigation. And what the Department of Justice did, basically at 8 p.m. at night after DOJ's offices were closed, 
was call into the office reporters, like famous reporters covering the White House from the Washington Post, right, CBS, like you name outlet, like these reporters trekked into the office. And DOJ spokesperson, Sarah Isca Flores, showed 250 texts between Strzok and Page to these reporters. Now, think about it. It's at night. It's salacious. She reveals to them they're having an, they had an extramarital affair. Some of the texts had to do with Trump himself, like, God, I hope he's not president, something like that. Most of them are completely personal. And the FBI has regulations that say you can have political opinions, like no question about it. They have these regulations that say FBI officials and agents are entitled to a First Amendment. They can speak about their political opinions out loud in the public and, and personally, right, like within private settings. And so the next day and the next early in the morning, these reporters rush out and say, these, you know, agents um, had a grudge against Trump and they had an extramarital affair and it splashed all over the news. What does Trump, President Trump do the next day is he gets on Twitter and he targets Page and Strzok. He discusses their private texts. He calls them traitorous lovers and he effectively destroys their careers. Every day, he's busy tweeting about Paige and Strzok's extramarital affair and their private text messages. Now, intimate privacy is implicated because their text messages in ordinary times would never have been disclosed to reporters. Its disclosure violated federal law, the Privacy Act of 1974, but worse, it destroyed their lives. So Pete Strzok was ultimately fired from the FBI, even though he was the best counterintelligence agent in the country. Um, Miss Page, she actually um, resigned before she wasn't fired. She resigned, but their lives have been forever altered. They've been on, you know, their life's work was a pu- being a public servant and being a public servant, nobody knew about it, right? They didn't have a social media presence. The whole idea is the, when you work in counterintelligence, no one should know who you are. And their joy of life was to work as government officials, right? Uh, For Paige, working at the FBI's general counsel, she was in the Department of Justice's honors program. Her entire career was at the Department of Justice or the FBI. Struck for 20 years, right, worked at the FBI, and they can't work in that capacity since. So no matter what they do, you know, they've been deprived of their life's work. It's like there's no other better job when you feel so proud to work for the federal government and you're serving the public. Um, you know, Strzok has not gotten on his feet. It's been five years. And Paige has a job, but it's it, – and it's a good job, bless, but it's not paying what it could have paid had her life not been destroyed by the Department of Justice and Trump. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Let's turn to some of your proposals for securing the right to intimate privacy. What role can legislators, activists, and educators play in this? Right. So we've got we've got a big agenda on our hands, right? Um, the first is legislative. The, the first, I think, crucial move is for us to understand intimate privacy as a civil and a human right. Um, civil rights are, are are legal rights that secure uh, crucial opportunities so that we can all flourish. And when you call something a civil right and a human right, it means it can't be traded away 
without a really good reason. So it's not good enough for an individual to say, ah, this is fun, right? I want to destroy someone's intimate privacy because it's like sort of my good time or I'm showing off to my friends. And for companies, you can't invade someone's intimate privacy because it's good for your profits or it's more, it makes, creates efficiencies or it makes things easier to administer. And same for the government, right? You need a really good reason to invade intimate privacy. And when you call something a civil right, and this is under uh, modern civil rights laws, it means that you're the guardian of those rights. That is, you become the steward, the caretaker of those rights. And so in guardianship duties would mean sometimes you don't collect intimate data. It would mean an absolute no sale or sharing of intimate data. And it would entail duties of loyalty and non-discrimination and of care over that data. So it sort of transforms how we think about it. Right now in the United States, we think of intimate privacy as a consumer protection problem. So the default is collect all you want, sell all you want. There are a few limits, right? As long as you don't lie to the, you know, lie to the public and you tell them what you're doing sort of in vague terms and then you don't deceive them. This would shift the, the way you think about it and protect it. From a go ahead and collect and sell because it's a consumer protection matter to a civil right where everyone who has touches intimate data has to treat it with care, with duties of loyalty and non-discrimination and with profound protection as the, as the first order of business, right? So that's the legislative approach. And that would affect site operators who right now have immunity from responsibility. We would shift that section 230, a legal immunity to one of responsibility, it would change how lawmakers in the United States approach intimate data with protections that go beyond procedural thin protections that would in- require substantive commitments of loyalty and non-discrimination and no collection or sharing in certain circumstances. And it would change how individuals, of course, like a comprehensive approach to intimate privacy, but it also would have significant. So I've worked for the last 12 years with companies, you, you, most recently, of course, with TikTok Bumble, Spotify. I've been on Facebook's non-consensual intimate imagery task force, and I work with Twitter and their trust and safety council. And we can bring the fight to for intimate privacy using moral suasion to these companies. Like we need to convince them. It's and that can't just be me because I have you know alone without laws incentives. It's a tough sell. <laughs> like I make all these arguments to companies, and it's not that they don't listen, but their shareholders and their business incentives mean. Yeah, we'll listen a little, <laughs> right? We need to bring the case of moral suasion to industry so that they adopt these practices, even though law doesn't yet require them. Once law requires them, then it's an easy argument, right? Then we just need law enforcers to help us enforce the law. And for all of us, right, we're, um, we've got people in our lives who we can teach, right? And that's people who aren't just children, but of all ages, And I've seen steps in industry to try to educate users, right, about their own obligations to the communities. But we need to do it in our own lives because so often, you know, young people are brought up and they're not told that they have responsibilities to other people, that they should be digital citizens with real responsibilities and that intimate privacy should be at the fore of those conversations. So I try a little bit. We all should, though. I need everyone's help. Right, I need us to talk to our loved ones about young, old, in between, right? About how they could shouldn't like click and share if they see a nude image. It's salacious. It's exciting. Don't share it. Don't look deleted. Right? 
They need to, you know, go to companies and say, hey, protect my intimate privacy. It matters. So I think it's like we need a I would I always joke as a lawyer, you know, that we would throw every tomato against the wall. You know, I need all the tomatoes. <laughs> I need a whole kind of approach, law, industry, and people. What advice would you give to people who've been victims of intimate privacy violations? So there are groups, so the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative in the United States, the N Revenge Porn Hotline in the UK, there are groups in, all across the globe who work on these issues. So I think first things first is go to um, groups that have hotlines that can provide psychological counseling and kind of help you figure out, you know, some of your options. It's really hard, especially in the United States, because we don't, and this is also true of the UK, because I've worked with the folks on your Intimate Image Abuse Commission. You don't yet have a comprehensive law addressing intimate privacy violations. You have an upskirt law, God bless, thanks to Gina Martin in the UK, but but you have, you, you've got work to do too. And so you need to hire a lawyer who can help you. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of low bono or pro bono counsel. So I always have a tough time because I say, go to CCRI's website, go to End Revenge Porn if you're in the UK. There are other options in Iceland. South Korea has a very vigorous, God bless them, the digital sex crime uh, content commissioner. They have sort of new innovation. So depending on the country you live in, like go to sites that are advocates on your behalf and see what can be done. And what preemptive measures can we take to protect ourselves better online? Ah, this is the tough part, right? Because I have some small tips for us, but because the problem is so vast, because it's so systemic, meaning companies are endlessly and pervasively collecting our intimate data and then sharing and sell it and selling it. And because, you know, people can betray our trust. There are some tips we can take, but they're like, what do they say? It's it's small comfort, but we still can do it. So like I have a camera on my phone and on my computer. You should take a little sticky note. It's not expensive, right? And put it on your camera when you're not using it. You should... Do all that you can to protect your passwords and use like double authentication when you can, when it's offered. I mean, there are things that we can do, but they're quite quite small measures um, to combat the vast problem. Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This week's episode starred Danielle Keats Citroen and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. The editor was John Doughty. The series is made by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. Danielle's book is The Fight for Privacy, Protecting Dignity, Identity and Love in the Digital Age, and it's out now. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>